0: every week uh, we bring people up here to do these all-of-life interviews we, we do an interview with you know we often say that all of life is all for Jesus and we talk about that and we try to explain it but we want to take a few moments to show you what that looks like lived out in other people's lives uh, their recreation their vocation and any other aspect of life So we're going to do that again today. So I wanted you to go ahead and give a hand to Grant Goss, who we'll be interviewing today. Go ahead. Thanks, Grant, for doing the interview. Sure thing, Jim. All right. Well, first off, tell us, what do you do? Well, I
1: don't speak in front of people for a living. Uh, I have been working in uh, in construction since uh, my senior year of high school. Um, most recently as a home builder um, until my boss said that they didn't have enough work for us to both keep busy, and so he let me go. And I figured, well, you know what? I've got the tools. I've got the know-how.
0: I'm going to open my own business as a handyman. So that's what I've been doing. That's great. So uh, Ephesians five one talks about how we're called to be imitators of God. So through your work, what does it look like for you to imitate God, to reflect some aspect of who he is through your work?
1: I'm a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter.
0: <laughs> End of story
1: right there. <laughs> no, I've actually never really specifically thought about how I ever have portrayed some aspect of God. Um, but in talking about this question with some people, I've, I've realized that just what I do Uh, can be a reflection of God, uh, some aspects of God. Specifically, what is the first thing you see God doing in the Bible? When you open it up, Genesis 1, he's creating, he's building. As a constructor, that's what I do. Throughout the rest of the Bible and ending the Bible, what is the whole theme of it? It's restoring. God is restoring, he is rebuilding, he is making things, broken things, function properly. He is making things... To be what they're supposed to be. And as a handyman, that is also what I do.
0: That's great. That's good. I think that's a really important answer. And I actually encourage all of us to ask that question about our particular vocation. What does it look like for us to reflect God through what we do in our work? Another question I wanted to ask you is, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And we can sometimes love our neighbor through sort of acts of interpersonal kindness, like bringing someone a meal but also the, our, our very work can be an act of love. How is your work an act of love and service to others? I would
1: say that what I do uh, is an act of love and service in that I allow other people to do what they do well. For example, there may be a web developer who has a hole in the drywall. I'm going to go ahead and guess that they're not very good at p- patching drywall. Hmm. I am. Hmm. <clears throat> so I can come in, and instead of them spending hours upon hours trying to figure out how to patch this hole in their drywall, I can do it. I'm, I'm rather good at it, and I don't, I'm not going to spend as much time as they would spend. They can take that time and do what they're good at. They can do their web thing that I can't do, profit themselves and profit whoever they're working for, because I am... Working, uh,
0: doing what I'm good at. That's great. That's very important. So tell us how we can pray for you and other people who do what you do.
1: Well, I'm actually not going to ask for prayer as a handyman. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for prayer as somebody that is self employed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been self employed since 2009. And in being self employed, I've realized that uh, it is an excellent opportunity to learn to trust God for providing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't, I, I can't depend on a, uh, on a regular paycheck. Uh, my income is a lot more volatile than that. Uh, so I learned to trust that God will provide for me, and what he provides is what is necessary. Mm-hmm. And so I would ask for prayer that all of us who are self-employed would learn to trust God more and, well, no and. Yeah, yes. that's good,
0: that's good, and no and. So uh, if you are self-employed, not necessarily as a handyman, but just self-employed in any way, would you go ahead and raise your hand? All right, great, there's a few of you out here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and pray for you. God, I thank you uh, for, for people like Grant, for people in our community who take the risk um, to start uh, businesses and to start new ventures. We pray that these ventures would be opportunities to serve and bless others, that they would reflect the the self-giving love of Christ, that they would reflect um, just the restorative work of our great God. God, we pray for them. We pray that you would, uh, with each uh, week, with each day, that you would show them how to trust in you and to see that you are the God who provides our daily bread. We pray that you would bless them, that they might be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name, amen. Give Grant a, a hand, please.
2: All right. Well, good morning. My name is Tyler Johnson. I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church here with you this morning because Ricardo is finishing his trip up in Hawaii. Um, of which I don't feel bad for him at all that he has to come back and work Uh, so I'm a little jealous of him I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church. As Jim said, Redemption Church, come January, we'll have seven congregations uh, with a deep belief that we're better together than we would be apart, and one of those ways in which we are better is we get to do more ministry together. We've just recently, in the past few months, launched a ministry called Redemption Foster Care and Adoption because there's a crisis, a child welfare crisis in the state of Arizona Um really at times unparalleled any at any other point in our history of how big the crisis is in the foster care system. So we have called ourselves as a church to take up the command of James one twenty-seven to care for orphans. And we want to engage this issue relationally. So we want to see... Lots, hundreds of families engage uh, to be foster parents or to adopt kids out of the foster care system and the rest of us to come around and support those families relationally. We want to engage the issue relationally. We have had huge fruit out of this thus far. My hope was in the next couple of years, we would see a hundred families complete the process all the way. We've had hundreds and hundreds of families get more information. And right now we have at least a hundred families pursuing the formal process to get kids into their home. That doesn't mean they finalize the process, but they're in the final stages. So to that, we should give a hand and praise. Thank God for that. That is a uh, huge thing uh, for us in our city and for us to experience the joy of God by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, which we really encourage you to have each time we come together, Uh, Open it to Romans chapter six, starting in verse 11. We're gonna put that passage on the screen and I'm gonna ask you in the back to just keep it on the screen until we maybe move to some other passages. Uh, But I'm gonna read it again. It was read earlier, but I wanna read it for us to get our heads around it, say a prayer and we'll get after it. So, verse 11 of chapter six in the book of Romans. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let's pray. God, I don't know uh, the stories of everybody that's sitting in this room. You do, and God, we trust that your word will not return void, that you, Jesus, might come to us clothed in the scriptures, that we might see you, taste you, experience you, and touch you today uh, as we experience you in the word. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and God, we pray uh, as this passage exhorts us that we would not be just hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If I were to say to you right now that after this service you come up to me and I'm gonna tell you God's will for your life. Come up to me after this service and I will tell you God's will for your life. Now I did say if I were to say that, I'm not telling you that, but if I were to say that, my bet is hundreds of you would come up. Tyler, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do in this situation? What is his will? Now the scriptures tell us that, not in the specifics of your situation, but in a way that is so profoundly true that if you grasped it and understood it, I promise you it would change your life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, God's will is our or your sanctification. Now, that's a word that's very big that many Bible teachers use and theologians use this word called sanctification. What does it mean? Here's what it means it means to be consecrated or set aside to be holy for a very specific purpose. God's will for his world is its sanctification. This is God's world, the world the Bible says that he made. In which he said it is very good. Sin came in and corrupted that world. And God from that moment on said it won't always end like that. I will sanctify it. I have made this world. I will purify it. Set it apart as holy for the benefit of God's glory. And the good of the whole world. And the good of every individual person within it. We are people within that world. God's will for our lives, First Thessalonians 4 says, is our sanctification. Our being set aside as holy. Another way you could say that, that likely will connect with way more of you, is that God is after your true humanity. He is seeking to make you fully human. Now this is just the introduction of Our message today, but if you followed the line of scripture, human beings are the only thing in all of God's created world that are made in his image. God made males and females in his image. After the image of God, Genesis says, he created them. We're the only thing in all of creation made in the image of God. Sin comes in the world, corrupts that image, but does not destroy it. Corrupts it, but does not destroy it. And God's quest now for his world and for human beings is that he would make them and restore them back into the image of God. So he sends one that will restore the whole world back to the way God intended, and his name is Jesus, who the Bible says that Jesus is the fullest human being who ever walked the planet Earth. He lived out the truest of what humanity really is. The book of Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus himself is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the exact image of God. If the image of God is what human beings are and he's the exact image, then Jesus is the fullest human who ever existed. Then in a few chapters in the book of Romans, when we move forward in chapter 8, Paul tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, that God has predestined those of faith to be conformed into the image of his son. Who's God's son? Jesus. So we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, who is the fullest human being. So today, what we are gonna look at is that we are fighting to be fully human. That there is an active element in which you and I participate, those of us of faith, participate with God in his work to make us fully human, made in the image of God. We will fight for our true humanity. Here's how you can fight for your true humanity, your sanctification, if you will, is by correctly calculating. That's gonna be verse 11. We will fight for our true humanity by correctly calculating, number two, by drawing the line On sin, it's going to be verse 12, by going all in, it's going to be the second part of verse 13, and then leaning on the promise, verse 14. So let's get after this. First off, we will become more and more human, more and more made into the image of God by correctly calculating ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Look at verse 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is an identity statement. Those of us who are, have faith are reckoned dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, I have four kids. I say this often when I get on stage. So I have a boy who's about to be eight next month. I have another boy who's six. I have a girl that'll be three in January and a girl who's one and a half. And a couple weeks ago, my wife went on her annual trip with her dad and her sister and her dad's wife to Iowa City, Iowa to watch a University of Iowa game. They're big Iowa football fans, so pity them, I guess, because they're not very good. Um, My wife has never, in all of her years of going to Iowa City, seen Iowa win a football game, nor have many people, but she, she has never seen them. Win a football game. And so they chose to go watch them play like Atachi State or something. I don't know. Some crazy small school that they knew they were going to win. And they won. Um, but during that, she was gone for about four days, right? Which meant dad had four kids for four days. Now, that's crazy. Okay? On, on a whole bunch of levels. But one, you're sitting there and I'm realizing... This is wild. I mean, these kids have incessant needs all the time. Dad, can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? One's pulling on this leg, one's pulling on this leg, and the noise doesn't stop. Sometimes it's intelligible, sometimes it's not, and so you're just trying to manage, like cracker here, water here, milk there, pull down your pants to go to the bathroom here, clean up diapers. It does not stop. So there's this one moment where my daughter says to me, Dad, get me this, to which I turn around, and, and very calmly, believe me, very very calmly said, Lucy, you're not the only person in this house. She looks at me and her, she gets up straight and she goes, dad, I'm not a person. I'm a princess. (laughs) Okay. And I think to myself, now that is either going to create major problems in life. Or if it's theologically motivated, which I didn't think it is, it could be really, really good. Meaning if she really thinks I'm a princess, I'm better than all the people because I'm exalted, that's a problem, right? I mean, that's a, people don't like to be around people like you, Lucy. <laughs> but if she's saying, I really have been adopted into the family of God and I'm a daughter of God and a princess, well, then that's a good identity. Here, Paul is saying very clearly, you must consider yourselves If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are those by identity who've died to sin, been raised to life in God through Christ. The first 11 verses of chapter six in the book of Romans was all about our union with Christ, that we have been adopted into this triune family of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by being united with Jesus We've been adopted into his family. And in being united with Jesus, we have been baptized. That video was reading this passage that we've gone through. Baptized in dying with Christ to sin. Being raised again to new life. It's an identity statement. If we are ever going to find our true humanity, we must find our identity. So what is the core of our identity, of your identity? Because many of us don't identify with that, of being children with God in union with Christ. We identify with other things. So who are you at the core of who you are? The core of who you are in your identity, how do you think about yourself? Are you an addict at the core of who you are? At the core of who you are, are you an occupation is that your identity at the, core? at the core of who you are? Are you a father, a mother? Are you a wanderer? Are you at the core of who you, being, who you are, a sexual creature? The Bible says, no, at the core of who you are, no matter who you are in this room, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, the Bible says, at the core of who you are, you're made in the image of God. And as a Christian, the core of who you are is a son or daughter of God who are in union with Christ and therefore having died to sin and been raised to new life alive to God in Christ our life comes through Christ we're dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus this Past weekend, my wife had some things to. Past week, my wife had some things to do. Uh, the next morning, she had pulled in, tried to turn on her car, it was dead. Well, the next morning, I had a lot of stuff I could do. She wanted to take the kids out; it was fall break. There was no way to do it, so I needed to fix the car. Right now, this is the one mechanical thing I think I can do is jump a car. But this car is one of those ones that you is a newer one. You can't put it in neutral just on its own. So you gotta like get a screwdriver, pop off this thing, push this button to get it into neutral. And then at at every level I'm going, I'm quite mechanical. Look at this. I can pop this off, push this button, get it into neutral, put it out. I'm feeling better and better about myself all the time. I go, I know how to open the hoods of the cars. My wife's like, how did you know how to do that? I'm like, baby, it's unbelievable. Like I am very smart, (laughs) right? I can open the hood. I get out these cables, black and red, and I'm thinking, I know what to do, right? The black goes on the red. I'm not kidding. Black goes on the black. Red goes on the red. You put it, and all of a sudden, at that moment, that dead battery draws from the life of the battery that's full of life, and this dead battery comes to life, right? So don't be mistaken. You're not alive in your own power. You are alive to God In Christ, our union with Christ unites us to a life, unites our dead life to his life, and we are made alive in Christ. That's our identity. If we are ever gonna become fully human, we need to remind ourselves, consider, that means continually consider, continually reckon, continually calculate ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and then everything else that we're about to say comes from that, Everything else we deduce from that fact. They're the deductions that come out of that, which lead us to this next reality. If we are to become more fully human, made more into the image of Christ, we have to draw the line on sin. If we are gonna become more fully human, we have to draw the line on that which will suck life from our very bones at every level. Not just leading to physical death, but leading to us living a life that we are like the walking dead. That's what the scriptures say, is that we need to be passionate to draw the line on sin because the one who's the author of sin, the one who was behind it from the beginning is a liar and a deceiver. He's out to seek, kill, and destroy. And sin, therefore, is out to seek, to kill, and to destroy you. And yet many of us just go, oh, It's just sin. I'm only human. I feel so deeply convicted at this moment to just talk to you as a pastor at Redemption Church to say this. The very thing that God has called us to as the people of God, that he's called every other church to, will not be fulfilled if we claim to follow the holy God and yet live like hell. If we claim to live like him and love like him, and we quote verses like we do in Redemption, Foster Care, and Adoption, the true and undefiled religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress, which we have to do, right? That's a part of pure and undefiled religion, and we celebrate these great things we're doing, but if we fail to then say what the rest of that passage says, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world, I promise you, church, We will not fulfill the calling that God has given us in this world to love our neighbors as ourselves and you will not fulfill the promise of experiencing life and experiencing it to the full that God said you will unless we draw the line on sin and we understand it is our enemy. Unless we draw the line on sin and we begin to understand it as deceptive, as portraying to us where life is found when in fact it breeds nothing but death. It lies. Sin lies to us. And it is unbelievably formative. Now I understand this as a dad, right? There are lines that you have to draw at moments because your kids are formed very easily. This is why kids that are parents that are very young parents begin to see their kids and when their kids start developing they'll say things like, these kids are like parents. They say everything you say. And then the older they get you realize they do everything you do. That's why you who said I'm never going to end up being like my dad or my mom, all of a sudden you get to like 30 and you're like, good lord almighty. Like, I am my parents. Right? Things form you. They shape you. Practices at your home shape you. Sin does that to us. I think about that as a parent. I've got to draw these lines, right? So there's these moments. I'm I'm a dad, and I'm a male, and so I like stupid stuff, right? And so there's these moments where I'm like, this will be really fun to see a five-year-old say, beans, beans, the magical fruit, you know? (laughs) The more you eat, you know, and then the word comes up, toot, and everybody's, ha, 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 I'm like, this is the best, and my wife's looking at me, shaking her head, right? Or these moments, I'll dance with my kid. This is another story. I was dancing with my kids one day. My son's three, the son that's now six, he was three, get this, he was three, now he's six, and we're dancing one day, and I turn, and I know, right, I want in this moment to get a laugh because it makes me feel good, so I turn to him, and I start dancing, right, and I'm shaking my booty all around like this, and, and he's laughing. I did it once, folks. Three years later, he does it seven times a day, right? And which, when he's addressed on this issue, he goes, dad did it, and my, my wife will look at me and go, Tyler, What I work all week to do with these kids, you undo in like four seconds. And you perpetually do it. And I think to myself, Haley, how dumb can they be? Like I did it once. I didn't say do it for the rest of your life in front of our dinner company and at school, right? Like I didn't say that. And she's like, no, how dumb could you be, right? But that's the reality. That's how we get formed. The world is like that. That's why in First John, the scriptures warn us about these enemies of true life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world continually communicates to us, this is what the good life is. The good life is the accumulation of more and more stuff. And in fact, we'll give you a card to get more of it, whether you have the money to do it or not. The world communicates to you, looking like this is the good life. And we'll provide the means no matter how much it costs to get you to look like that. The world communicates that experiences, one more experience, whether it's another trip or whether it's another high are the very things that are gonna be the good life. And yet they always consistently fail to deliver because the one behind it's a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. And sin is massively deceitful and yet it shapes us. That moment where we go, hey, it's just one more thing and I got this card. That one moment when you make that decision to purchase that thing shapes you for the next decision. Decisions build upon decisions. They create habits. And habits begin to form you as a person for greater amounts of life or for greater amounts of death. This is why in verse 12, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now this is very important to understand what is he doing with this phrase Mortal body. Let not sin reign in your mortal body because Paul has just told us in these first 11 verses that we have died to sin. But don't be mistaken on this. If in faith, and that's the only way you die to sin, so if you're sitting in this room and go, I don't believe any of this. We respect you, we respect your intelligence, but just so you know, what the Bible says is that we are slaves to sin. And the only way we get deliberated from our slavery is by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the greatest emancipator. He frees us, he cuts the cords of slavery to sin, and now we are made free. We've died to sin, but hear this. We have died to sin, but sin has not died to you. Understand the distinction. Sin is not just then dormant laying on the ground. You've been freed from it, but sin's after you. And if you don't fight it, you don't draw the line in the sand, understanding that that sin will rob you of life, will rob you of true humanity. If you don't draw the line in the sand, you can have sin reign in this mortal body. Now, is the body bad? Well, no. God made the body and said that's very, very good. God so cares about the body that he will give us resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Now we've been freed from sin and yet sin still remains in the body, in the members, because our members, our literal physical body is being trained ongoing by a world that's telling us the good life revolves in another direction other than God. Our bodies are being trained by the world. It's being trained by our flesh. The body that was trained over and over again to do these bad things and can continue to be. And by the enemy, the devil, the scriptures say. We're being trained by that. So there is a reality that if we don't push sin down, understand its wicked ways, how deceitful it really is, We will be captured by it, and listen to me, your body matters. This is why he goes on, he says, mortal body, then he says, your members, which is literally your physical body, your limbs, other translations will say, present your members later on. He's speaking about the power of our physical bodies. The mortal body is this body that's been trained by sin, that if we don't stay on top of it, and then train it for righteousness we will be down a path of greater death rather than greater life, less humanity. We will become more and more anemic to our true humanity or we can be more and more bowed up and buffed to our true humanity if we follow the ways of Christ. Your body matters. Now think about this for a minute. We said just a minute ago, each decision that we make builds upon itself. It trains itself. There's all kinds of modern research right now saying the reality is, is in any given moment that you make a decision, the reality is as a human being, you don't really make the decision in the moment. You made the decision months ago. That we make way, this is all kinds of brain search research right now, that in the moment you have been trained in such a way intentionally and or unintentionally, most often it's unintentionally, trained by the world, trained by the decisions that you repeatedly make, you've trained yourself to make the decision you make in that moment. Don't let it be lost on yourself to think, you you know, you're this self-actualized person and you're really, really smart. No, in the moment you actually make that decision and you calculate it. No, the decision's been made for you. Habits have been developed that you decide in that given moment. I read a book um, that was speaking to this reality, speaking of you guys. Remember the the pilot Um, that was flying over the Hudson River in New York some years back and everything went bad and he was able to land the plane on the ground and when they asked him, how did you do that? He said, you know, we we had trained for that and then I replayed those things in my mind consistently that if it were ever to go bad and you were on water, here's how you would land. He had made the decision in advance which enabled him to then act it out in that given moment. Your body, what you do with your body matters dramatically matters. So what you decide to do with your fingers on Facebook shapes you for later. What you allow your mind to do now in your thoughts about other people, when you exalt yourself above them and you say, oh, aren't they so stupid, trains you for later. What you determine in the moment tonight to get relief from trains you in the moment Do I go to alcohol to get relief? Do I get relief by putting other people's down? Do I get relief from looking at pornography? Do I get relief from smoking marijuana? All of these things that some of them are in and of themselves, not bad things. A beer is not a bad thing. The Bible says wine rejoices the heart, but if that's where I go to receive relief in that moment, or the pornography is where I go, believe me, you are enslaving yourself even more. No matter who you are as a human being, but as a Christian, you're taking those chains in which Jesus has freed you from and locking yourself back up in chains that you do not have to be locked into. Because you've died to sin, and you've been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those decisions you make shape you for the future. The words that you decide to use will shape you. They will affect others, and they will, in the end, either humanize you or dehumanize you. That's why the author of the Proverbs says, words kill or words give life. You choose. You know what's amazing about that proverb? It's not just that words can kill somebody you send them at or give life to somebody you send them at, but whatever you choose, it does the same thing back to you. If you choose to use words that kill somebody else, I promise you they in turn will kill you. If you determine to give life to somebody through your tongue, it will give you life. That's the Bible's teaching. Why the, Paul told the Ephesian elders, remember this, it's more blessed. You will be happier in giving than you will be in receiving. You will be happier in being a blesser than you will seeking it all for yourself, which is why I try to teach my kids every single day, God made us to be givers, not takers. He made us to be givers, and in the fact, you will experience more life in giving than you will in taking. Make no mistake about it, church. Sin tries to trap us. Sin tries to dominate us. And if you are not aware of that at every given level of the thoughts that arise in your mind, the feelings that you have in your heart, what's going on around you in the world, you will be trapped, you will be deceived, and you will be dominated. Now, let me make a point here about mortal bodies. I said it already, but I got to say it again. Bodies are good. Good. The natural instincts that you have are good and given by God. The natural feelings that you feel are good given by God. But those feelings that I feel, if not rightly assessed according to the word of God and what God intends for his world, will be made an aberration. They will be made into a disease that latches onto your body and sucks it of life, or they can be made for greater life. So don't look at your natural instincts, like I have an instinct to eat, that is of God. You need to eat to live, but not just, he didn't just say eat to live, he gave you taste buds to enjoy that. But what sin tries to do is tries to make you obey its passions, look at the end of verse 12. Here's what sin does. Satan, sin, and the world are not creative. Satan's not a creator, he's a duplicator. Sin isn't a creative, it duplicates. So it takes the good things that God has made and then tries to make you over-desire them, to love the created thing more than the creator, right? So it takes a nice four peaks pumpkin porter and says, God says, enjoy this, and you go, I gotta have it. Where did it go from I enjoy this to I gotta have it? God made us sexual creatures. It goes from enjoy this in the constructs and constraints of what God intends in marriage and says, all of a sudden it says, no, I got to have it. And to be a free person is to freely express myself sexually. And God goes, no, that's actually going to kill you and could kill the society that you live in if you live like that. Sin tries to get you to make you obey its passions because its desire for you is to seek you, kill you, and destroy you. If you are passionate about your life, if you're passionate about the lives that are around you, whether it's your family or those you work with, you have to draw the line in the sand on sin. That's why he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Be aware of what you do with your members, your body, what you do with your feet and your toes and your legs and your eyes and your head and your hands. And get rid of all the stuff that wants to suck life of you. This is why the author in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, says, throw off the weight. Throw off every weight that hinders you and the sin that so easily entangles you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, he delineates two things. There's sin in your life that entangles you. Identify it. Kill it. Acknowledge it. Is what I'm doing with my fingers, with my eyes, with my head, with my hands, with my life, all that God's given to me being used for unrighteousness or righteousness, all that entangles you, get rid of it. But then he says this, but there are things in your life that aren't fundamentally sin, but they're weights, they're weights, they're in your way of getting to Jesus and they're in your way of loving your neighbor as yourself. This could be any number of things that in and of themselves aren't sins. It could be video games, video games. Don't help me get to Jesus which in turn don't help me love my spouse better or my kids better or my coworkers better or my neighbor better. It could be. It could be things that you eat. It could be the way you spend your time. Sin desires to take you to an extreme, obey its passion. So God made you a worker. Sin latches on and tries to make you either a workaholic or a lazy bum. God goes, no, I want you to be a worker, not a workaholic, Right? I want you to be a worker, not one who sits and thinks of every way that people can serve me. Sin will try to trap us and dominate us unless we draw the line in the sand and realize each decision builds upon itself, makes habits that will lead either to life or greater death. Here's the third statement. If we want to experience the fullest of humanity, we got to go all in. We got to jump in with two feet. Go all in. That's where he says, but present yourselves to God. Go all in. God, I present how much of myself? Yourself, all of yourself. Present it to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, God, all of me from my fingers to my toes and all in between from the top of my head to the tips of my toes I present myself to you God use everything I have that is a gift of yours to be used for righteousness God what you intend in the world for greater love of my neighbor in greater love of you this statement present yourselves to God is yield yourselves to God it's, it's like a marriage if we were doing a wedding in here right now and the couple stood on this stage on this there's a little circle here that's put right in the middle i think it's people hook up stuff in here but it also shows the, the middle of the room so wedding coordinators love the center spot cuz so everybody can see but if we were at this center spot i was conducting a ceremony there's a husband and wife there at that moment you share your vows in your vows you're going i yield myself to you i am making a once for all commitment the way god designed it i'm going all in at this moment with you. And that once for all decision has implications for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other decisions. If you're in the room and married, can I get an amen? Right? Like you said yes at that moment and you went, wait a minute, this is no longer my money, but it's our money. This is no longer our time, my time, but it's our time. Those are no longer your kids, but they're my kids. every single level, that one time decision deduces a thousands of other decisions. When you say, God, I'm all in. Hear me on this. It should and has to make a thousands of other decisions for you at that moment. Now you either believe I'm all in because I don't want to go to hell, right? Which isn't totally bad motivation, but I don't think those are the people who ultimately end up getting it. to heaven. The people that get into heaven are those who love God, Romans 8 20, and who are called according to his purpose. We go all in because we go, where, like Peter, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Eternal means not just life then, eternal's forever. That means life now. Where else would I go? You have life. You are what it is to truly be human. You are the one who shows me how to use my taste buds, how to use my senses, how to use my touch, how to use my sight, how to use my mind to the greatest fulfillment of the community I live in and the greatest fulfillment of me. Those are never divorced. It's why in those words, when you choose to give words of life, you get life. When you choose to give words of death, you get death. Where else would we go, God? You hold the words to eternal life. He said, I came to give life and give it to the full. Do we want full life or mediocre life or not kind of life? Or ultimately, the Bible would say it's death. Present yourself to God. This is why later in Romans chapter 12, he'll say, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him which means holy and acceptable to him is the greatest fulfillment of us and the greatest blessing and benefit to our neighbor. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, got it. He said, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? So I run in such a way that I might get the prize. I buffet my body and I make it my slave so that in the end, I would not be disqualified from the race. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I buffet my body. I discipline my body. I think at every level are my members of my body being given to righteousness or unrighteousness? Because in the end, I don't want to be disqualified from the race and get death rather than life. I want life. Paul is so pro life, and he is, honestly, he's really self interested. I don't want to be disqualified from the race. I want life, and I want it to the full, and it's found in Christ. I want to be used and used to the full. The way I'm used to the full for the greatest blessing of my family and my neighbors is to live in Christ, who is the Lord of life. So what does that look like to buffet our body, to discipline them? Let me just submit to you a couple things I think it means. I think it means we've got a dream. We need to be people who understand enough what God intends for the world, What he intended at creation, and we look at that and go, wow, that's what life looked like before sin. We need to look at the end. Man, read Revelation 21 and 22 and see how people are operating together and begin to ask, what would life look like without sin? What would my, my fingers be doing? Am I gifted as a mechanic? How could I be using my hands that God has gifted me as a mechanic or as an artist or as a doctor? For righteousness, the greatest good of my neighbor. Because you know this, when you're a barista and you use your hand and you go, how can I best serve my neighbor? You go, the best way I can serve my neighbor is make the best latte I can possibly make, right? And when they take it and they drink it, they go, that was amazing. What happens to you? Deep amounts of gratification. When you're a doctor and you're doing surgery at that moment, it comes out and you go, the surgery went amazing, and they are elated, yes! The surgery went, uh, went amazing. And they say, thank you, doctor. And you go, this isn't for my praise, but whatever that was was worship in that moment. When you're sitting with somebody who doesn't have very much money and you get to give them the best deal that you possibly can while still making a profit and giving them their car back and you get it and they go, thank God I can go back to my job. They receive gratification and you receive gratification. We need to dream like that. And then we need to begin to journal like that. We dream like that. We need to journal, God, how can I use the mind that you've given me? I'm an engineer and I think like this. How can I greatest use it as an instrument of righteousness? You've made me strong, and how can I use that? Whatever it is that God's given you, envision that, journal it, and then we need to gather together in communities and help refine that for each other. The creative endeavors, because God's the creator, we're meant to imitate him. God, who's the creator, can go, yes, church, start that, do that, continue that, use your bodies, rather than as instruments for unrighteousness, as instruments for righteousness. And then he confirms it, and he says... Hey, and just remember in verse 14, he says, sin isn't the Lord of your life. You're under grace. You're my kids. Relax, have fun. Enjoy this process. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are amazed by you. God, how you make us into your, have made us in your very image. God, how you provide for us life and life to the full. God, we need your power and your strength. God, your power and your strength is the only way in which we will have the wisdom and the discipline to use the members of our body as instruments of righteousness rather than unrighteousness. You tell us that that's a fruit of your Holy Spirit, so we ask you for the Holy Spirit that we might in our lives live out the fruit of the Spirit, We might live out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. God, make Redemption Church a church that exists for your glory and for the good of others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.